Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, verse 12, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? No. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether it's sin, which leads to death or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 4, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come tonight eager to hear what you said through Paul and this letter. That we can continue to find our place in your story, understand our role on this planet, and the meaning of our life, 
and what it means to claim your name as Christian. And Father, we too lift up Christina tonight and pray that you would be with her and the doctors or whoever's looking at her, that you bring health to her and heal her and that she will be fine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what makes a great story? What is it about stories that make some good and some flop? The director and producer named Ken Burns thinks that a good story is like this. This is his words, Ken Burns. The common story is one plus one equals two. We get it. But all real genuine stories are about one plus one equaling three. That's the kind of story I'm interested in. Close quote. So what Ken Burns is basically saying is that to him, a great story is a story in which the sum of its whole is bigger than the little parts within the whole. That when the whole thing is looked at and said and done, the story itself is more glorious and better than all the little details and characters that helped participate in it. And that's the same way it is with us and God's story. God's story is a great story because one plus one equals three in this story. It's, it's much bigger than you are, than I am, and thankfully, it's much bigger than Adam is. <coughs> the plan that God has, the story that he's been crafting through history, is a great story. Now... Man has had this habit of wanting to live a life that says, I'm the author and I'm living my own story. And it's unfortunately a common story. It's a story where one plus one equals two. We get it. It's logic. And this is usually how man's story thinks. It's my kingship plus rebelling against God's kingship equals freedom. One plus one equals two. I do what I want. I don't do what God wants me to do. I'm free. But that's just a common story. It's way too, it adds up way too much. And so man would also say something along the lines of God's kingship plus my submitting to his kingship equals imprisonment. And that also is one plus one equaling two. It's a pretty predictable, cut and dry, bland story. But God's story is great. Because in his story, you can't just take one and one and expect two. You get something bigger and better. God's story says, if you take God's kingship and add that to my surrendering to his kingship, you don't get two. You don't get boredom or imprisonment. Rather, what you get is freedom, liberation, or the word of our series, restoration. That's why God's story is great, because it doesn't seem to add up. It's almost ironic that as I give up my story and my liberties and submit myself under his kingship and live in his story, then I actually find myself restored to liberty and freedom and joy like I would never have within my own power. And that's why I think that according to Ken Burns... God's story fits underneath the criteria of a great story because it's surprising and the result is greater than the components within it. 
Now, this irony that the more we enslave ourselves to God, the freer we are, is right there in verses 20 through 22. And I'll read it again so you can hear that irony. Because when I you know, look over this, I'm like, wow, that's strange. For when we were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What you're getting was death, end of verse 21. You were free in regards to what God wanted you to do, but what you were earning was death. Does that sound like a free plan? And verse 22 is the opposite. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get is eternal life. It's a much better deal. So... The irony is right there. That the more I give up my kingship and crown Jesus as king and live in his story and stop writing my own plans and give up the pen and all that stuff, he's in full control. The freer I am and the fruits that I receive from this life are fruitful of beneficial life-giving fruit, not death and enslavement. So that's part of what Paul wants to say is that God's story is great because... It adds up to more than what it seems to offer. It's surprising in the benefits that God's story gives. So, Romans 6, what we're going to look at in this chapter, it's about a shift, a great change. It's about how you and I once lived in a different story, Adam's story of self-rulership, I'm my own king, It's a shift from that story to God's story where God's the author and the king. And that's what Romans 6 is about. It's one of the more important chapters in the New Testament. I wouldn't say the most, but one of them. And it talks about that transition that we make from a common 1 plus 1 equals 2 story to a grand 1 plus 1 equals 3 story. So it's about that shift. So, now it's been a while, guys, since... I've talked about the meaning of story. We've, we're in message number, I think it's 24, maybe 26, something. We're up in the 20s in this series called History, where we're finding our place in God's story. And it's been a while since I've explained what we mean by story, because I think often the illustration speaks for itself. But let me just one more time remind us. Stories are something that everybody has. Okay? You don't just find stories in books. Like, look through the page. There's a story about the tortoise, the tortoise and the hare. That's a good story. Stories are also found in lives. And everybody lives within a story. And what the story is, is it is the order of events that give us answers to a couple of questions about the meaning of life. So, if you live in a particular story here, you're going to have this one view about what life is about. This story will give you another view of what life is about. And God's story is giving us answers to questions like, Who am I? And what's wrong with this world and who I am? And how is there going to be a solution to what's wrong with all of this? And God's story, when we look at the beginning, the 
conflict and the resolution, all of these things explain to us the questions of life. Who am I? What's wrong? What's the solution? So let's run through God's story up to this point and answer those questions. What does his story say we are? Who are we? Why are we here? You might remember way back in our first two messages that the Bible opens up with this planet full of darkness and water and basically there's no life. It's all death and darkness. And then it opens up with this great bolt of light and God says, let there be light. And life begins coming out of this darkness and out of this death and out of this chaos. And God begins speaking. And the chapter shows us that he is imaged like a king who is creating for himself a kingdom. And in this kingdom, he then creates man to put within the kingdom to be the under kings and to rule for God through the kingdom. And that's what we saw in Genesis 1 verse 28. I will read it to you. God told Adam, you are to be fruitful. You're to multiply. You're to fill the earth and subdue it. And then you're to have dominion over all of creation. So man to be God's under king means God's the king of the earth, his kingdom. He puts you and I in it so that we're to rule over creation underneath his authority. We are in the image of God. That means we are ruling in his likeness. So we were put in the garden to rule over creation so that it would spread and that God's ruling presence would spread with it across the entire globe. That's why we were here. That's who we are. We're his under kings over creation. But enter conflict. We don't experience this kind of lifestyle because... Adam bought into the serpent's lie. And the serpent said, Ah, but you don't have to be God's under king. You can be your own king. How do I do that? Just rebel against his kingship and make yourself king. Who said you have to obey him? And Adam bought into it. And he ate from the fruit of the tree he was told not to eat from. And so then rebellion happens in the kingdom. And God the king has to exile Adam from the garden. And the dominion that he was supposed to have over creation is now reversed. Creation begins to have dominion over man. We are slaves to creation now. And you see that right off the bat in chapter 3. He tells the woman, look, you were to be fruitful. You were to multiply and fill the earth. But now you're going to have trouble bearing children. And it's going to really stink when you have to raise your kids and they rebel against you. And to you, Adam, you were supposed to subdue the earth and to have dominion over creation. Well, Adam, now when you are working on the earth, it's going to resist your rule. It's going to bring thorns and thistles and briars. Everything is being frustrated. Adam, for you to get anything off of the earth, you're going to have to sweat really hard. A lot of toil. So man's dominion, nope, not creation has dominion over us. And that is the mess. That's Adam's story. That's what happens when we say, "Mm, rebel against God's kingship, I'll be my own king. Creation then masters us. 
And under our kingship, we saw with the flood that creation becomes more and more corrupt and that Adam's story results in death. And that's the story we're all living in. We're all born under the story that leads to death. It has a bad ending. That's called a tragedy when everyone at the end dies. (laughs) But then here's the answer to our problem. We know who we are. We know what's wrong. Man's rebelling against God. But the answer, the solution, is that God is bringing restoration to humanity through Jesus. Look at 5 verse 17. 517, for if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam and his rebellion, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus. So if by one man, Adam, develops the story that brings death to the world, Well, God can easily say, but this is my story and it's going to bring life to the world. And that's what Jesus did. He he offers a chance to be restored to God's story. When we left it and rebelled and lived in our own, he says, hey, I'm calling you back to mine in Jesus. And so now we have these two stories running parallel. And Jesus offers us to come into his story. And he's there offering it to us. You see him coming to the earth as a new Adam. He has total dominion over creation. You see people with leprosy. They have been mastered by illness and disease. And Jesus comes and reverses it with total dominion over creation. Total rulership. And says, leprosy, be gone. And leprosy's gone. And when they're on a sea and the waves and wind are tossing them and the disciples are mastered by the weather, Jesus simply says, peace be still, and creation obeys him. And we see Jesus coming as the new Adam, the way man was meant to be. And he begins to call people out of their stories, out of Adam's story, and into his own. Be restored to God. Let us dwell once again in Eden with each other. So that's what we see Jesus coming to do. Now, now let's get to our chapter in Romans 6. So Jesus restores us by pulling us out of Adam's story and putting us in God's story. And that's what the book of Romans is about. If you look at chapter 1, He starts off by saying, Paul is servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Then his thesis statement of the book is in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. We see that Paul introduces this theme called the gospel in Romans. And Romans is centered on the gospel and what it is. Now, the Greek word for gospel, most of you know, is simply good news. That's what it means. Paul is declaring the good news of God. But what the good news is, is clarified a little bit when you look at our English word gospel. Gospel is, comes from two old English words, which is God's spell. And God, 
it was actually pronounced gold back in the day. Um, it was actually good. And spell is an old word for story. So it dealt with the good story. Now later, gold became pronounced God, and they began to look at gospels saying God's story. But what, what the gospel is, is the good news of God's story for mankind. Everything we've been doing in this series from Genesis up now to Romans is dealing with the gospel. It's the story of what God is up to in the world and how he's seeking to redeem rebellious man and to live with him once again in a paradise garden of Eden. And so Paul is talking about the gospel through Romans and he's talking about God's story. And I think it's clear that from the very beginning, he has the story in mind. In chapter 1, you see that he deals with creation, like in 120. For the invisible attributes of God, his divine power, divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Paul begins with creation. He then moves into what happened to creation in verse 24, or uh, 23. But he says, then man exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Man rejected God's story and developed his own. There was rebellion. And as a result, creation has dominion over us. Like in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to their lusts. Verse 26, this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. There's this whole slavery that's going on in this story. And Paul's picking up on God's story. In chapter 3, verse 23, he says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's the bottom line. We all rebelled against his kingship and we fell. And we messed it up. And now the earth is corrupt. And we're slaves to creation. We're slaves to every other passion that we have. But the solution he introduces here in 321. The solution is Jesus. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. We've been looking at the story of God. All the books have been telling us that Jesus is coming. There's a restoration that's about to happen. And then he says in verse 22, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's Jesus who's bringing the message of restoration to God's story. To restoration with his presence in Eden. And then we see the story of Abraham. God promised to bring this restoration through him. Chapter 4. Paul saying that Jesus came in fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. In chapter 5, he deals with Adam. And he basically says that Jesus answers what Adam messed up. Adam rebelled against God's kingship and Jesus came to establish his kingship. And that you can now jump stories. And that's what chapter 6 is about. And then in chapter 8, verse 21... We see that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Jesus is going to come and free creation itself. And then in 1620, the book ends with this victorious phrase. 1620, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. (coughs) So, 
the rebellion against God will soon end. And Paul, I think clearly, with what we've seen in the series history, has the story of God in mind in the book of Romans, and he's spelling it out, and he's saying that this is the great appeal. You have an opportunity to give up your man-made kingship, leave yours and Adam's story behind, and jump into God's story and experience life and liberty and restoration. And this is how he says it. He says it in chapter 6 with the word baptism. (laughs) Baptism is the act of transitioning into God's story. He says in chapter 6 verse 2, How can we who died to sin still live in it? You know what that's saying? How can you continue to be mastered by sin when you have been moved out of Adam's story? You're not your king anymore. Jesus is your king. So how can you continue to live in rebellion against his kingship? You've shifted over to a new story. Do you not know, verse 3, That all of us who have been baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death. So this is what happens. When you jump over into God's story, you become so identified with Jesus that he lives the story and you live it with him. And that as he died on the cross, you died with him. And as he rose from the dead, you rose with him. And all of this is demonstrated that we shifted from Adam's story to God's story when we were baptized in water. We're demonstrating that, that you're going into the water, I'm my own king. You go into the water, and you're buried under there, and you come out with God as your king. In his story now. A new man. Like verse 4 says, you're going to walk in newness of life. And this is exactly what happened to Israel. As they were held bondage by another king, his name was Pharaoh, and he enslaved them and killed them, and they did not have freedom When God came to be their king, he delivers them out of Egypt and he takes them through the Red Sea. And it was at the Red Sea that they were forever freed from Egypt. For the Red Sea was the death of the Egyptians and the life for the Israelites. And so they were, in a sense, baptized through the water. And they come out of the water with a new king, living a new story, God's story, restored to life. And that's why, Christians, we get baptized. It's our display to the world that we have shifted stories now. That we have a new king. And that we are now examples of what God wants to do through people. He wants to restore creation and every nation to his presence in a new Eden. So, (coughs) that's the transition. Now, As I read chapter 6, I couldn't help but notice all of these parallels to Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And these are some of the parallels. The early chapters of Genesis deal with death, right? Don't eat from that tree or you die. Well, Paul has a lot to say about death. We just read it in verses 1 through 4. You look at 7 through 10. um, For one who has died, and it goes on through verse 10 talking about death. You look at verse 21, it says, But what fruit were you getting at the time? You were getting death. Death is all over this chapter. 
Um, Genesis talks about man having dominion over creation. He has rulership and control. Guess what verse chapter 6 says? Verse 9. Death no longer has dominion. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. See what's happening when you shift stories is the dominion that creation had over man is being reversed. And we no longer will be enslaved by sin. We're exercising dominion. That's restoration. Jesus is restoring us to his story. You look at the word ashamed in verse 21. Adam and Eve, when they rebelled against God's kingship, they were shamed and they hid their nakedness. You look at the word fruit in verse 21 and 2. Fruit is a very, very big word. (laughs) I did not mean to say that. It's a very big word in Genesis. You shall not eat from that fruit, but you can eat from that fruit. And they're also supposed to cultivate the garden, remember, and make it grow. Fruit's a very big theme there. And then life, of course. In verse 22 through 3, there's the mention of eternal life. There was a tree of life in the garden. Jesus now stands as our tree of life. So what we see is that there's this restoration happening. That as we shift stories from Adam's to God's, Jesus is restoring us to Edenic circumstances. Not that we are there, but he's beginning to give us the dominion we lost. You can master sin. Oh yeah, not perfectly yet. But there is the power of God to re-exercise his rulership over it. And now there's life in place of death. There's fruit. So, those are some of the big ideas here that's going on. Is that we're shifting stories. We're being restored with God. Chapter 6 is that great first step that we are being brought to a new Eden with God once again. So dominion, fruit, and life are restored to us. Now, that is the point that God's story is bigger than all of our stories put together. We find this restoration. We're beginning to have dominion again. We're beginning to bear good fruit. We're beginning to get life. When we give up our kingship, and surrender to the kingship of God, and live in his story. He translates us from Adam and in to Jesus. And this is the message that Paul wants us to have, is if indeed you've transitioned into God's story, that means he's your king, so live like it. Verses 12 through 13 is the application. I know that because these are the only verses that speak with command authority. Verse 12. Let not sin reign. That's a king word. Let it not be king in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present them to God as those who have been brought from death, Adam's story, to life, God's story. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So don't present your body as instruments to sin. But present them to God. The word present is dealing with what you would before a king. Don't, don't offer for its use. Don't let sin be the king and say, I'm at your service. 
Go to Jesus. He's the king. I'm at your service all of my life. I'm in your story. I've I've been transitioned from my story into yours. So let him be king, he says. That's the point. And these verses that he's supposed to be king are also answering that question in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And as I shared at communion, you guys heard a little bit. It's very tempting for some of us to think, oh, well, golly, I mean, to be restored into God's story is free. Sounds like a good deal to me. So I'm going to like have parts of my story fit into God's story, which is actually the other way around. Trying to fit God into your story. Just trying to crown. You're trying to live both. And you're thinking, yeah, because, you know, grace, man, I'm forgiven. I'm covered. I'm good. Hmm. But you're missing it. You're missing the point of what it means to be restored. Okay, God's story makes God look great. It makes Him look glorious. But what makes God's story look great is how we tell the story to the world. And we don't make the story look great by telling the story, by redoing redoing the whole Adam-Jesus thing all over again. As if. I'm going to just rebel against God's kingship. And then I'll be restored back into his kingship again. Now that's what God's doing with the world. He's bringing rebels into his kingdom. And that makes him look good. But when we continue to tell the story by continuing to replay Adam and continuing to be restored into his kingship over and over and over, you're only telling half of the glorious story. See, Paul wants to say the true glory of his story is not that Jesus can restore you to his story, but it's what it looks like through those who have been restored. Don't tell the story that God just wants to restore you into his kingship and like, woo, so I'm just going to keep saying and keep being restored. Tell the story by showing people the restoration that happens when he is the king over your life. Show the people what restoration looks like, not just how to get it. Restoration looks like a return to God's presence in Eden. Restoration, therefore, means that you now are bearing fruit. Because that's what Eden was a place. Fruitfulness, life, dominion. And Paul says, if Jesus is your king, know that you're a slave to the one you obey. And there are wages for the one you obey. And if you're obeying Christ as your king, guess what? There is fruit. There is Edenic proof. There's restoration happening through you. And wherever you go, you're bearing fruit. You're doing what Adam was supposed to do in the garden. Dominion, bearing fruit, cultivating, bringing God's presence. That's what we do. As Jesus is king over us, there's fruit that's happening. He sends his spirit as the cultivator and the fruit begins to grow. That's why Paul uses the results of a Christian life. I think he uses the word fruit because in his mind is that there is a restoration to Eden happening in the Christian's life. Fruitfulness, gardenness is happening. 
So as he's king and you continue to live in his story, you're glorifying his story way more than you would by saying, my story, oh, look at God, he's so good, he brought me back. My story, oh, God's so good, he brought me back. You're just showing the first step of the story over and over. But as we continue to submit to his kingship, you're showing where the story's going. You're showing the restoration that Jesus will bring when he returns. You're showing the fruits of a new Eden where all creation and the nations are restored to God's presence. That's the powerful way to tell the story. And that's why you can't just go on and and just flippantly sin. Because you're not participating with your king as the under king over his creation. So, Galatians 5, 22, 23. You guys know the fruits of the spirit. Those are... Those are the things we're to take with us everywhere we go. And those things happen when Jesus is king over our lives and we live in his story. We take love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control everywhere we go. And there you are cultivating gardens where you go. You're bringing cultures of Eden amongst our peoples and our communities We're building cultures through the kingship of Jesus because he is bringing the fruit through us. And so our job then is that we continue to bear fruit everywhere we go as a message of his story of restoration until he comes, crushes Satan's head, and establishes Eden for our restoration. So, Father, I pray for your kingship to take authority over our lives, that we don't just say we live your story, but that we literally are in your story because you are our king and we live by your kingship. So, I pray for fruit to blossom abundantly in Tree of Life, Father, that these people would become that tree of life that stands in a wilderness world of death and offers to all restoration. And that people would see it's a tree of life because of the fruit that hangs on its boughs. So, Father, we pray for this through your Spirit. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Melt us. Mold us. Fill us. Use us to be ever so fruitful for your kingdom's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.